You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, as we wrap up 1 Thessalonians this morning, let's remember that the whole letter in its entirety. This is a young church plant that has been faithful and growing, and the Apostle Paul, along with some of the leaders of the church, has written them in encouragement and as a reminder to hold fast to the story of what God has done in them and through them and and really in the whole region as his church marches forth and spreads in the midst of opposition all over the Roman Empire. And so... Um, we remember that Thessalonica was this small church plant that against all odds has started a gospel movement in the region. And above all, um, above that, Paul has instructed them in their sanctification. He showed them how to live out their belief as it pertains to morality, Christian living, sex, and death. We've seen a correction of their beliefs surrounding the return of Jesus and death. And last week, Cole showed us that he reminds them and encourages them relationally to relate to their leaders and one another with respect and dignity and honor. And this morning, as we look at the conclusion, we see a rapid fire list of instruction and final benediction, a closing of the letter that I would argue ties all of this together. And while it's a link, a list of distinct instruction, I think there are three major things we are being invited to remember about God in these closing verses. First, don't forget God's providence, his providence. Second, don't forget God's presence. And third, don't forget God's provision. So we have providence, provision, and presence, or providence, presence, and provision, rather. So first, God's providence. Read with me in verse 16. It says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So rejoice, pray, and in every circumstance, be grateful. Why this list of instruction? Remember, they have been persecuted. They have feared death, and rightfully, because some of them have been killed because of what they believe about Jesus the King, and they have faced outright persecution and backlash. They are suffering. And so is this a calloused instruction here to just be grateful regardless of what's going on, to pray in every circumstance? No, I'm convinced the only way that we can excel at rejoicing in our suffering, the only way that we can excel at gratitude and prayer during suffering is if we lean on the doctrine of God's providence. Here's what I mean. The doctrine of God's providence, simply put, is that God is in control of everything. God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. That means um, when when Paul instructs us to rejoice in all things that we can, we can access joy in all things. We can rejoice and worship God as the providential one. But how in suffering can we worship in joy? Well, there's a a distinction here, and it's an important one. Paul says rejoice in all circumstances. He doesn't say rejoice for all circumstances. Does that make sense? So stick with me here. When we suffer, we can rejoice in the God who is sovereign over all circumstances, the God who uses evil, uses broken, uses sad, abusive, challenging, horrible circumstances. He uses them for our good. How do we know this? Well, verses like Romans 8, 28 say, For those who love God, all things work together for their good. Genesis 50 says, What man meant for evil, God has used for good, that many should be kept alive. Or Romans 5 connects the dots. It says this, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, this is not a call to be happy because something horrible is happening to us. This is a call to remember God's providence, and in doing so, you will be led to worship and rejoicing because God is sovereign over the evil and suffering of the world. He uses it for our good in his kingdom. The persecution of the church in Thessalonica results not only in the character building of individuals here, but in a viral outbreak of the gospel. If you've been around me for the last few weeks, you might know I'm bad at this. If in small circumstances I'm, I'm experiencing suffering, I frequently grumble. I frequently pity myself. I frequently invite bitterness into myself. But that's not the Holy Spirit who says rejoice always. God's providence also allows us to pray without ceasing. Particularly in situations of suffering, prayer is a posture of appeal. We appeal to the power of the one who controls and is above all things. We appeal to the sovereign one. There's all sorts of things prayer does for us. It grows us in humility. It allows us to be less anxious, but ultimately it postures us toward God in a right and correct way. My temptation is to avoid prayer. I'm tempted because of my pride. Often I think I can figure this out. I can fix my circumstance. I have the skills or knowledge or whatever to figure out the problem or suffering I'm facing. And therefore I can remove myself from this suffering if only I try harder. But Paul is saying, no, 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 pray. And in doing so, you will be rightly positioned in humility as a creature under the creator God. Always pray, he says, in faith and in reverence. And therefore order yourself correctly. And often God uses moments of intense suffering to remind us of the order of things, to remind us that he is in control and working things for his good and and glory, and therefore our good and his glory, as horrible as they might be, and get this, regardless of whether we will understand them or not on this side of glory. It's in these moments that I'm most humbled and therefore most reflect Jesus when the suffering is so great that I realize very clearly that I am human. I cannot know everything. I cannot be everywhere. I cannot do everything. And I must pray to the only one who can do all that I can't. So we are charged to pray as an outworking of our faith in the God who is above all and over all. I think this is less about constant mental chatter towards God and more about a constant posture of necessity, independence, and reverence toward God, Yahweh. When we look at suffering in this way, gratitude becomes accessible. When we remember God's providence, his sovereignty, gratitude is the natural reaction. We can't help but be grateful for God and his providence that he chose us to be his people. We can't help but be grateful that he is growing us in all circumstances into his image. And this tells us right here, it's God's will. What is? Not that we would suffer. Suffering is markedly not his will for us, so much so that he came in the form of a human and died on a cross in Christ to redeem his people from eternal suffering and death and transfer them into an eternal kingdom of life and flourishing. So his will for you is not that you would suffer. Rather, his will is that in all circumstances, you would become more like him who rejoiced in sorrow at Calvary. Jesus, who said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, who prayed without ceasing, his complete unceasing posture was dependence on the Father. It's his will that we would become like him. So Paul tells the young church, remember God's providence. Remember he is for you and remember he is good. You have good reason to rejoice. You have good reason to be grateful. You have good reason in every season to go to him in prayer and confidence. 
And second, he reminds them of God's presence. So his providence first, now his presence. Continue to read. Do not quench the spirit, says in verse 19. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. In considering God's providence, we may be tempted to think of him as distant and sovereign. God is distant and powerful on a throne, but not near. But Paul reminds us the reality. The Holy Spirit is God's presence. He is God's He is God near. He is God indwelling. He is God here in us. There may be some debate here, but I think verse 20 is an expansion of verse 19. He says this, don't quench the spirit. You are despising prophecy and therefore you despise my voice. Don't quench the Holy Spirit's presence and voice. Instead, yes, hear me, but test everything according to the scriptures. And if it's good, if it's right, hold fast to it. And if it's wrong or it doesn't match up with my word, abstain, not just from evil prophecy, but every form that evil takes. We know that in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit of God is poured out onto believers. And when this happened, Peter reminds the people of a prophecy that speaks to this event and says this in Acts 2.17. And he's quoting Joel. Um, In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. On my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall all prophesy. Particularly in the early church, the Holy Spirit was speaking through men and women to encourage, exhort, and proclaim the good news of Jesus. This is before this New Testament was written and canonized, so the prophecy of the Holy Spirit was vital to the proclamation of truth to the early church. But not just anyone could say anything and say it was from God. That was true then and it's true now. It must be tested against the truth, tested against the word of God, tested by the words of Jesus, tested by the people of God, tested by good, healthy leaders in good, healthy communities. We aren't going to spend a ton of time on prophecy this morning, so I'll say this. There are probably a few things that come to mind when I say the word prophecy. One is a prophetic speaking and writing of the Bible by the Holy Spirit through the authors that we have in the Bible. So the prophetic writing of the authoritative and sufficient word of God. That's not what I'm talking about here, and I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here, because he's talking to a young church, Thessalonica, from whom we have no authors of the canon of Scripture. Another thing that might come to mind is a cultural understanding of prophecy that largely relates to a specific or individual's future. For example, you might have heard someone say this, or, or, or heard of somebody saying this, it says, like, I have a prophetic word for you that you're going to be a missionary in in Asia or Africa. And I'm not saying those things can happen, but we have to test with the scriptures. And we have to be careful because um, it's really hard to test future prophecy against the scriptures, right? Paul says right here, test your prophecies against the scriptures. Well, how can I test somebody telling me, hey, I have a prophetic word for you. You're going to do this at such and such a time in such and such a place. Um, How can I test that against the scripture as it relates to individual prophecy? I'm not talking about somebody say, hey, I I want you to know that Jesus is coming back. No, that we could test that against Revelation, right? But or or even against Thessalonians right here. But I'm talking about when somebody says, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. It's hard to test that against the scripture. So I'm not saying it's always wrong or always incorrect, but we have to be able to test it. We have to be careful there. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about because he gives us this instruction to test. So what is Paul talking about? Well, Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma, and I think he actually has a good practical definition of prophecy that is in line with what Paul is talking about here. He says this, Prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. Prophecy is the speaking forth in merely human words of something God has brought to mind, often spontaneously. 
So here are some examples. You see someone during the worship gathering crying and you get the feeling inside you to go over them and pray for them and tell them they are loved and known by God. Does that strike you as prophecy? Here's another hypothetical. Say I'm in my renewal group for accountability and someone confesses sin and my response is this welling up in the moment of, hey, hey, you need to know that you are forgiven and the Lord's will for you is to walk in freedom from that sin, not bondage. That's the future he has for you. His will is for your future is that you would not be a slave for, to sin, to this sin, but instead that you would walk in purity and freedom. What about that? Is that prophecy? Well, in both those examples, I'm speaking about something that was spontaneously brought to mind by the Holy Spirit, I think, and I say a word that is true for them and possibly related to their future, and both of those examples are testable by Scripture. Can we go to Scripture and find out if God's will for us is to walk in sin or freedom? Yes! Can we go to Scripture and find out if God's will for us is to, to know that we are forgiven and loved by God, especially in a moment of suffering? Yes! If we start leaning into prophecy like this and just prayerfully inviting the Holy Spirit to encourage one another through us and embolden us to take those maybe uncomfortable moments where we feel the prodding of the Holy Spirit to go and speak God's truth, I think one thing we would do is reflect God's love more and more and more to one another. But more importantly, if we did this, we'd be reminding each other that God is present. He is here. He is among us. He is with us. And he speaks to us through his word and through his people. So we shouldn't be afraid to, with boldness, tell brothers and sisters that the Holy Spirit is laying on our hearts something for them. Because first, you can test it according to the scripture as it comes to your mind, right? You can say, this seems like it's from the Lord. If he tells us that he loves us or tells us to abstain from sin, that we should enter his rest. Those things like are clearly aligned with God's word. So as we receive what feels like a word for the Lord, from the Lord, for somebody else, we can test those things. But even as we receive these things, we can ask, like, is this person telling me something that is from the Holy Spirit? We can test that. We can ask questions like, does this line up with God's word? Does this person know and believe in Jesus? Does this line up or contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is this in line with the person's character? And does this prophecy build up and edify the church? Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from evil. Abandon false prophecy, but cling to good words from the Lord. And in doing so, in living into our gifting as men and women to proclaim the good truth of God to one another, we are being actively reminded of God's presence among us. So we remember God's providence, and we remember God's presence. Finally, we remember God's provision. Let's read again here. It says this, Now may the God of peace, verse 23, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The only way we can remember his provision in a way that allows us to rejoice, the only way we can access gratitude, the only way we can posture ourselves in constant prayer, the only way we can remember God's presence always, the only way we can face death with honor, excel in holiness and righteousness, and live honorable, honest lives of grace, the only way we can do these things is because of verse 24. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. The God of peace sanctifies us, not partially, but completely. He transforms not just our soul, but soul and body, our whole selves he transforms so that our lives here on earth will be complete and marked by his peaceful rest. This has been such a theme in 1 Thessalonians that God, our God, is concerned with not just our, our minds or our souls, but our bodies as well. He transforms our whole body and soul so that it goes well for us 
here on earth. But not only so it goes well for us here on earth, he does it so that when Christ returns for his bride, we'd be found righteous as he declares us to be, and therefore we'd be ready to spend eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus. This is the great exhale of the letter in persecution in suffering in trial in the face of death in the call to holiness in the call to humility jesus has called you and he will complete in you what he has declared he would what god decrees comes to pass how does the god of peace sanctify you completely in christ the answer is the gospel the good news of jesus you see humans are sinful we can't do all the good things that god's word calls us to do we can't abstain from all the bad things that god's word calls us to abstain from we need a mediator to give us peace with god and that is who jesus is he lives the perfect life that you could not live and because of the resurrection that perfect life is applied to those who believe in him He dies a substitutionary death for your sin that we deserve, even though he was sinless. And because of the resurrection, the death is applied as payment for your sin if you believe in him. So the resurrection is how the truth of righteousness is applied and sealed. It's how the dead come to life. We were dead to sin, scripture tells us, slaves to unrighteousness, and now we are found righteous in Jesus. But even so, he rose from the dead, ascended to the throne of heaven, and poured out his spirit on us. Why? To sanctify us completely, to apply the righteousness which is already ours to our lives. He is faithful. He will surely do it. He provides himself as sacrifice. He provides himself as a righteous substitute. He provides himself as the first to rise from the dead. He provides himself as human and God and king. He provides himself in the form of the Holy Spirit to indwell us and sanctify us completely. He provides. God is provider. So what do we do in remembering his providence, his presence, and his provision? Let's read the last few lines as we conclude this morning. It says this, verse 25, Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So we pray for one another. Two, we we move close to each other in affection, brotherly love, and we display this in our greeting, right? Kissing is not a mandate here, but, but without getting bogged down in the cultural context, the thrust of the instruction is to practice proximity and affection in our greeting. We aren't cold or bitter with one another. We are affectionate. We are genuinely excited to see one another. And third, we read the word of God. He put them by charge to read this letter as God's word. So we read the word of God and forth. We remember his sufficient grace is with you. These things and really everything we've read this morning have implications for our communal worship. Think about our worship gathering and our liturgy. We rejoice in worship. We pray. We give thanks and generosity and at the table of communion, right? The Eucharist is, it means um, thanksgiving, So the Lord's table is the table of thanksgiving. We make space for God to speak. We read and proclaim his word. We greet one another in his peace with affection. We remind each other of the work of sanctification being complete in one another by God. We proclaim that he is faithful. And we are sent to tell of his faithfulness, his glory, his goodness, and deliver his invitation of belonging and salvation to a broken world. Sojourn, the the grace of Jesus be with you. He is faithful. He will complete the work he has begun in you because he said he would and he does what he says. Believe in him. Rejoice in him. He is uh, is providential as our sovereign father. He is present in his Holy Spirit right now. And he is our great provider who in Jesus provided all, not only all in sacrifice, but as his children, all is counted to us as gain in Jesus. We share in, in, in his inheritance. This is good news. Let's pray. 
Lord, I pray that we would appeal to you as our sovereign Father who is in control. We'd be able to access joy and rejoicing and gratefulness even in the worst seasons of our lives. Not for our circumstance, but because you are sovereign over them and you are with us in the valley. Pray that you would pour out an extra measure of your presence for us who are suffering. Um, Even now, would you be close to those who hear this prayer and are suffering? Um, Would you speak your peace into them? And Lord, would you provide? Would you provide what we need, whether that's sustenance or healing or or comfort? Um, And ultimately, Lord, for those who believe in you, we, we rest in the fact that you provide all in your son and you will provide all eternally as we dwell with you. We we hope in that fact and believe in it and trust in it. Lord, we love you. We're grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen.